So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM, Green Majority Radio. This program is a fine program, a very fine program, which you'll learn as you continue to listen, possibly on CIUT 89.5 FM. Or one of our much appreciated, appreciated radio syndicate partners, or on your smart speaker. All you have to say is, hey, Alexa. Play the Green Majority. But we know for a fact that you're actually listening to this in a shack outside of Moncton on your shortwave radio. It's an apartment in Sackville, New Brunswick. It's in a shack outside of Moncton. (laughs) My name is Stefan Hostetter. I'm David Hostetter. And some days I think I'm going to change my last name just so I match. But my name's Lauren Latour. I'm not yet Lauren Hostetter. Oh, yeah, you should get (laughs) that. Should we convince people we're weird siblings? Half-sister or, like, adopted? No, like, we grew up wearing matching pajamas until we were, like, 24 years old. Right. We're, we- we're weirdly close. We, breast- <laughs> we, we, we breastfed on our mother until we were eight. No, shh, stop talking. <laughs> we take a yearly photograph of the in the same pose that we were in as, like, yes, toddlers. Yes, that's a, yeah, that's exactly what and, we like, And it's, like, really awkward because, like, we were in the bath or some shit. I mean, that's gone a little far again. <laughs> also, we have so little time before the fantastic interview. We should maybe spend yeah, some time. You're yelling too loudly into the Sorry. microphone. Sorry. Yes, yeah, Stefan, Stefan is interviewing the prestigious Darren Qualman. Very auspicious interview. Darren Qualman of the National Farmers Union has returned to the Green Majority. Yeah. To speak with Stefan about the nitrogen cycle. Uh, well, they've released a new report about nitrogen fertilizer and its overuse of its impacts on the environment and the ways in which we should curb that to protect the environment and also support farmers in the process. What else are you talking about? Uh, we talk about the way that farming has been consolidized. Actually, cons- Consolidated? Consolidated, yes. Um, interestingly, we talk a bit about how the fact that the nitrogen uh, fertilizer companies there's only four of them basically and so they have an enormous amount of power over how things happen because there are like hundreds of thousands or if not millions of farms who aren't organized in a way to push back against these four companies that basically own everything and so we talk a little bit about the ways of how the consolidation of the fertilizer companies and the consolidation of you know the loblaws of the world sort of leaves farmers as the as the vulnerable population that have to be supported. If you're somebody who menstruates, you can use your menstrual fluid if you use like a, a diva cup to fertilize your plants because menstrual blood has nitrogen in it. So instead of buying that fertilizer that's ruining the planet, just empty your diva cup into your into your monstera. Actually, like don't that. do that. Water it down. Dilute it first. Anyway. And we're just going to do a little bit of climate news before we get into Stefan's interview here. Is that right? That's right. So I'm just going to read these two stories. Yeah. 
Okay. Big tone shift coming. Yeah. So Puerto Rico, a territory controlled by the United States, is recovering from another major hurricane uh, that caused the entire island to lose power and running water. The United States forced the island to privatize its power grid last year. Puerto Rico is now facing a major heat wave. And Coastal GasLink appears to be ready to drill below the headwaters of Wadzinqua, which is the sacred river that feeds perfect drinking water to Wet'suwet'en territory in northern BC. Uh, the Gidimdan checkpoint put out a statement reading, quote, Coastal GasLink equipment is now in position to drill beneath the Wadzinqua River, uh, which provides drinking water for Wet'suwet'en villages and has served as a key salmon spawning area for millennia. Wet'suwet'en territory is unceded, unsurrendered, and sovereign, and Wet'suwet'en people have never provided free, prior, and informed consent to the Coastal GasLink Pipeline's destructive construction operations. To date, Wet'suwet'en resistance to drilling beneath Wet'suwet'en has delayed the destruction of Wet'suwet'en waters for approximately two years. In the fall of 2021, Wet'suwet'en and allies sustained a two-month blockade of this drill site called Coyote Camp, until a series of militarized RCMP raids on Wet'suwet'en community members and supporters resulted in dozens of arrests. In advance of CGL's drilling operations, Wet'suwet'en community members have faced increased surveillance and harassment from RCMP's CIRG unit, C-I-R-G unit, as is the Community Industry Response Group unit, a police unit created to facilitate pipeline construction, and a series of private security contractors. Wet'suwet'en village sites remain under 24-hour surveillance, while police have made several arbitrary violent arrests, including with pepper spray. RCMP and CGL's private security contractor Forsyth were served a lawsuit by Wet'suwet'en community members who have been subject to this continuous surveillance and harassment. Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs and community members recently hosted a week of ceremony to protect and honor Wet'suwet'en including rafting tours of historic Wet'suwet'en village site within the Headwaters area. We will never stop defending our Yunta the way our ancestors have done for thousands of years. The pipeline will never be put into service. Who is that quote from? That's from the Gidimdan checkpoint. Hmm. And so that's the, uh, that's the checkpoint that was set up specifically to originally to, to blockade and try to vet who's coming into the area and so forth. Right. I mean... Very quickly, because we we don't have a lot of time, these two stories are really just, I think, perhaps the best example of, or not the best, are, are really just in a, another example of the ways in which colonialism is ongoing. And more specifically, I think, the ways how the sort of response from colonial governments cons- to, to people that they have basically taken over has often been, well, you're better now than you were before. You know, that, well, like, that's sort of, that, that's the, the that kind of response of, well, what was it like before? Or, or, like, we're helping you kind of thing, which obviously is wrong and and incorrect, but is put in even sharper focus of how unbelievably awful that sort of line of messaging is when you look at things like, Puerto Rico consistently getting less support for its destruction from extreme weather because it's Puerto Rico and not on mainland United States, you know, because the people who live there, you know, are Spanish speaking and racialized, you know, and that that's the only reason that they're not getting as much support. That's it. There's no other argument 
there's no other reason you could pretend that Puerto Rico is not getting, you know, Florida level support for when it gets hit by these things. Um, in the same way, you know, we can pretend all you want, or the Canadian government and the colonial system can pretend all you want that it is doing its best to support indigenous peoples on this land, where which, are the, which is their land in the first place, but we consistently ignore their actual input and destroy things that that are within their the rights to protect. And so you can't have both ways, colonial governments. You cannot simultaneously say you're making things better and then refute and then betray the people that you are claiming to help with your other hand. You it's not reasonable. No, exactly. And it's like I don't, the audacity that like our colonial government slash like white settlers in general have to on one hand say things like we live in a post-colonial world and we care about reconciliation when on the same like at the same time that all of this is happening and that like our our colonial government is in support of this company that's going to be destroying these sacred headwaters like imminently is happening at the same time that we're literally going to the like our, our leaders are all going to the monarch's funeral to like publicly mourn her and celebrate her legacy is ridiculous. Ridiculous. I was so annoyed um, when a CBC journalist who generally speaking, I think is really great at their job. They're like a terrific anchor. I remember specifically thinking a few years ago, they did a really great job during one of the, um, um, one of like the prime ministerial debates that was happening during an election. So it's not that I disrespect this journalist. I think they're good at what they do, but they tweeted out like, it, like I'm so grateful to live in a country where the most controversial thing that's happening today is the fact that our prime minister like sang Bohemian Rhapsody in a bar in London. And it's like, that is that is not the most controversial thing happening today. We're, we're invading these indigenous lands, these, 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 um, the, the traditional territories of these peoples and destroying it after they have made it like, they could not make it more clear that that coastal gas link is not wanted there and we're continuing to plow ahead and support them however we can whether that be through the legal system or through the police system or through the military system like it's like no i'm sorry jt singing bohemian rhapsody at a bar in london is not the most controversial thing and anybody that's saying it is is i don't know Ooh, i hate to use a word like false flag red herring but like that's that's literally all it is it's just distraction yeah. and it's annoying yeah and and not to mention or just put one other final point on that the canadian government spends about 58 million dollars a year to you know to prop up the monarchy and it's and all the ways that we do and that is less money than we spent sent to pakistan in in flood re relief money we spend this every year to keep this 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 figurehead afloat and as Canada to really no value of our own and that every year we spend more money than we spent to to help people in you know in Pakistan who just got who have still the what was it it was as many people as as exist in Canada like 33 million people were displaced out of their homes and yet we can't find as much money as we want to prop up the queen or now I guess the king like Colonial, colonialism isn't over, everyone. It is clearly as as strong. I mean, as strong as ever is a lie. Who have been kidding? Um, but it's still here, undeniably.
yeah, we're still deeply entrenched in it. We're still upholding these harmful systems. We are still opting to support our, our monarch over the people whose lands we occupy. Like it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's bad news bears guys. And with that, we're going to roll into some musical tunes and return with Stefan's interview with Mr. Darren Qualman from the National Farmers Union. He is a policy expert. He's, he is the director of Climate Crisis Policy in Action. He is he he writes climate policy for the union. Yes, and there's a new report out about nitrogen fertilizer which you can find at nfu.ca if you want to read up during the music break before we chat. And everybody does. Everybody does want to research prior to the interview. Cuz that's what makes sense to do. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> Don't belittle the idea that our listeners I am stoked to be joined once more by Darren Qualman, the Director of Climate Crisis Policy and Action with the National Farmers Union. Thanks so much for coming back. Thank you, Stefan. Great to be here. Thank you. So I always love our chats because I, I learn so much. I'm born and raised in Toronto, and so my understanding of farming issues is only ever about, I would say, one quarter baked at best. But I remember this topic that your recent report is now on coming up in our last couple chats. So I'm really excited to dive in more deeply because you have a new report that's just come out about nitrogen fertilizer. And for those who might be unaware, can you give us a bit of a background as to the importance and impact of nitrogen fertilizer? Thanks, Stefan. Yes, and I grew up farming here in Saskatchewan, so uh, I'm, I'm pleased to, to share what I can. Nitrogen fertilizer is not well-known but it's an absolutely critical civilizational feedstock. Second only probably to fossil carbon, synthetic nitrogen has really reshaped the world. By a lot of estimates, you just couldn't have as many people on earth were it not for the injection of additional nitrogen. So that means our cities are bigger, our economies are bigger. The entire global system has been made larger and more powerful by this injection of, of synthetic nitrogen. So it's a really critical feedstock into human systems and the economy. The other thing is nitrogen fertilizer is used in agriculture. Nitrogen is often one of the limiting nutrients in yield. So it's the most widely used, most highly used fertilizer in agriculture. It's, a, it's an important part of the, the yields that we produce in order to produce the bounty of food that comes out. 
could you just give us a bit of a history? Like how did synthetic nitrogen fertilizer come to be? Yeah, it's fairly recent. Uh, we've had very roughly 10,000, 11,000 years of agriculture. And it's really only in the last hundred that we've had synthetic nitrogen. Before that, agriculture proceeded by trying to close nutrient loops, loops of nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium. They tried to recycle things, recycle animal manure, compost, that sort of thing. Later, they started using uh, bird guano and they, they started really running into a problem with nitrogen fertilizer in late 1800s. In the early 1900s, two Germans, Haber and Bosch, developed a process for making synthetic nitrogen fertilizer. And since then, there's just been an explosive growth in the use of nitrogen fertilizer. To give you an example, in Canada, uh, we've quadrupled the use of nitrogen fertilizer just since the 1970s. Wow. And why is it so important? Like how much impact does it have on yield and like from economic perspective or from a yield perspective? Nitrogen is really critical to the biology. The sort of the structure, the frame of plants and animals is, is to a significant extent carbon. But a lot of the function is tied up with nitrogen, the DNA, the RNA, and certainly the proteins, the amino acids, that's all nitrogen chemistry. And if you don't have enough nitrogen, plants just cannot create their structure, they cannot create their seeds. And as we farm, when we take that grain, those grains and oil seeds off the land, as those tons of crop leave, tons of nitrogen also leave. So you have to replace the nitrogen. Some of that can come from nitrogen fixing plants like peas and lentils, legumes. Some can come from, from lightning. Lightning actually has enough energy in it to fix nitrogen right out of the air. And I should, I should have said at the beginning, the air is to a very significant extent, 78% made up of nitrogen, but it's not the kind of nitrogen that plants can use. It's an N2 nitrogen that's bonded and doesn't react. So there are natural sources of nitrogen, but when you're taking as much plant material, as much grain and oil seed off an acre or hectare as we do, you're taking a lot of nitrogen off and you have to replace that. And mostly that gets replaced with synthetic nitrogen fertilizer made in a factory. Cool. And so I want to sort of move us through the, the report as I understand it, and also connect it actually to a conversation I, we had on this show a few weeks ago with a man named Aaron Vantagen, who was a co-author of a book about degrowth. And in that conversation, we spoke about the need to sort of end our obsession with economic growth, or at the very least, drastically reduce the amount of materials that can sort of go through our economy. And in many ways, it feels like this report comes to a similar conclusion, but specifically in terms of within the agriculture sector. Can you talk about the need to deprioritize growth or in this context, you know, crop yield? Yeah. Nitrogen, I think I've, I've made the case. Nitrogen and nitrogen fertilizer is really critical. It's part of every plant, animal. It's a critical feedstock to civilization and agriculture. We're going to have to keep using nitrogen, but it's, it's in the balance. As you use more and more, the negative effects start to pile up. And one of the big negative effects is that it produces the greenhouse gas nitrous oxide. And that's one of the big three, carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. And nitrogen fertilizer use has a lot of effects 
everything from water and, and, and ocean dead zones and, and contribution to smog. One of the big ones is nitrous oxide and its contribution to climate warming. So right now what we're doing is we're trying to maximize output. And I'll say, I'll talk in a minute about what we do with that output, but this maximum output model leads to a maximum input model and farm inputs include things like fertilizer. So if you're maximizing outputs, you're probably maximizing inputs, including fertilizer. And what that means is then you're probably maximizing emissions. But yet we're now coming to a, an encounter with planetary limits where we can't continue to have systems that maximize emissions. We have to begin to minimize emissions. So that means rather than maximizing fertilizer use and output, we need to optimize that. And that gets to your point about, are we just going to continue to grow and grow and grow the system forever? Because if you continue to grow the output from agriculture, you'll probably continue to grow the emissions from agriculture. And if that emissions growth isn't possible, then that output growth, we need to think about that. So immediately when you start thinking about the output from agriculture, people raise the specter of, of famine and hunger. And that's real. We really need to maintain a system where everyone gets the nutrition they need. But when you look at what we actually do with that fertilizer expanded output, a lot of it goes to biofuels and those biofuels go into single occupant vehicles, SUVs, people in oversized vehicles that are often doing a lot of unnecessary commuting. So one could raise the question is, is that completely necessary? In Canada, the data is that about 40% of all food is wasted, thrown in the garbage, ends up in the landfill. Worldwide, that number is about 30%. That, that's complex. You need to look into it. I'm not saying that 40% of the crop tonnage goes in the garbage, but a lot of food does get wasted in various ways. We're using a lot of acres to grow cotton and other fibers for fast fashion. We're taking a lot of acres and tons of food and producing junk food, nutritionally disfigured food you know, sugary snacks and things that don't actually lead us to be healthier, but, but actually uh, erode our health. And then we're feeding a lot of grain to livestock, which, you know, when they're grazing on grass are a very good way to produce food and work with the environment. But grain feeding is inescapably inefficient for every five or 10 units of, of grain calories or grain protein you put in, you only get one out. So your losses are quite high. So we are using that fertilizer to dramatically expand our output, but then we're using that output in a lot of wasteful and unwise ways, things that we can change. So if we, if we more carefully marshal and, and shepherd what's coming out of the system, we won't constantly have to be on that treadmill where we're always working to produce more and thus fertilize more and emit more. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And so before we get into some of the environmental problems of, you know, messing with how much nitrogen is in our systems, I'd really like to dive in for a second about the impacts on the farmers themselves, because part of this report talks about the ways in which maximum yield also doesn't serve the farmers themselves. You know, the idea I think in people's heads is, well, you grow more, you sell more, you make more money, but that's not exactly the case. So What's the impact on farmers in this never-ending attempts to maximize output? This is a really important and, and sort of delicate question in that it, it is the case that fertilizers help farmers maintain greater yields and that 
that contributes to net incomes and sustainable, stable incomes, et cetera. So farmers are, are rightly going to want to continue using fertilizer. The question is, can we change the system in ways that benefit farmers that maintain adequate net incomes and yields and margins, but that get us off this output and input and emissions treadmill? And I think farmers are right in saying right now, whoa, we're, we're nervous, we're concerned, because it doesn't look like just cutting back on fertilizer and output is going to work for us. We're embedded in a global system, and there's a tr tremendously high cost on our farm. So I think we really need to work with farmers and help make sure that we have a sustainable economic as well as environmental trans transition to a place where we can moderate that input use in those emissions we're not there yet and that's why i think farmers are rightly concerned about where we are but that's in fact where we need to go and the good news is as we bring in a lot of these measures to reduce emissions efficiency measures best management practices that reduce emissions from the fertilizer itself without reducing the fertilizer we can help farmers produce the same amount of crop with less fertilizer and that nitrogen fertilizer, phosphorus, that's very expensive. So if we can re reduce the need to purchase that, we can increase those margins and increase those net incomes. So there's potential win-wins here, but it's not just as simple as dialing back the, the meter on fertilizer use. We need to make other changes within the system to support farmers. Awesome. And I, I would love to get into those other systems in a second, but before we do, and I think you sort of touched on it in that answer, but if you can expand on it, one of the main arguments I think that would come from folks who don't want to see any decrease in fertilizer use is that it's the only way to ensure that there's enough food for the world's population and that any type of cutbacks would be harming those who are, you know, for want of food. And I can guess a couple of your answers from your answers previously, but I'm curious if you could put a more fine point on it. Yeah, a couple of things. As the debate around fertilizer has emerged here in Canada, a lot of people have pointed to this feed the world argument. So we can look at that in from two ways. One, if you look at the current stocks of food in the world, it's above average. The United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA, publishes their world agricultural supply and demand estimates. And what they show is we're well above long-term average in terms of the tonnage of food just sitting around the world. And those of us that have been paying attention to food and, and hunger for a long time know that it's always the same. It's never that the world doesn't have enough tons to go around. It's always the fact that people are hungry because they don't have enough money to buy the tons that are already there. there. There's often food in the next country over or even at the port or there's food in the stores, but people just can't afford it. Now, there's a few exceptions to that in places where civil war or other natural disasters intervene. But right now, the planet is not short on tons of grains and oil seeds. Uh, we're not underproducing food. That's not the reason some people are hungry. It's a, it's a distributional issue, not a production issue. And, you know, the other way to look at it is if we really think there isn't enough food calories, enough kilos of, of wheat and lentils and peas and other things for people to eat, 
we should ask ourselves, well, what are we doing with those kilos now? And as I noted, we're turning a lot into biofuels, you know, a lot of the corn crop, a lot of the soybean crop, which covers a lot of North America and increasingly canola and even some wheat is going into biofuels. So if we're really concerned about feeding people, why are we burning food? More food goes into nutritionally disfigured snacks and junk food, and that creates a lot of health problems. A bunch goes into animal feeding, which is inefficient. Animals should probably be grazed as much as possible, not grain fed. There's food waste. So we're not short of food. We're maximizing production, but then we're dissipating and wasting and unwisely using a lot of that. So you can't actually get out of the problem we have right now in terms of hunger by just adding another X number of millions of tons to the output. Right. I remember hearing an argument, this is years ago now, but how there were no real famines anymore, only economic famines. There was that it was just a context of people just didn't have enough money to purchase the things rather than humans not being able to create enough actual food. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I guess I I would say ironically, but maybe the I should rather say depressingly, I think the one perhaps danger to us of actually not having enough food is in fact climate change related crop failures in the future. And so unless we begin to regulate now in the ways that we're sort of talking about, we could end up in a place where we might get back to real famines once more because of the ways that climate change might reduce yield. Yeah, that's a really critical point. And, and that's one that we bring out in the report. And, and I should have said at the beginning, the NFU report on nitrogen fertilizer is available at www.nfu.ca. We encourage people to read it. We think everyone will get something from it. So go to nfu.ca and you can download that report. Yeah, one of the things we bring out in the report is there are a lot of threats to food production. And one that we need to really look at carefully and manage is fertilizer. And we need to make sure we have enough of that and farmers have enough to produce the yields they need and the net income they need. And we're all dedicated to that. But that's different than maximizing use. But the other threat to long-term food production is a destabilized climate. And the big contributor to that, of course, is the burning of fossil fuels, carbon dioxide from fossil fuels. But another contributor is the use of fertilizer. So Every person and every farmer has an interest in maintaining a stable climate. And one way to contribute to making that happen is to use fertilizer as carefully and optimally as possible. For sure. So in my review of this report, it introduced me to a a new planetary limit that I honestly had not thought about previously and did not know about, which is always fun. It's always fun to learn about a new way we might be destroying the planet. But what that is, is the unbalancing of the nitrogen within our systems. You you hinted about this earlier in the conversation when you said that Canada had tripled its use. But could you talk a little bit about what that unbalancing could mean and the impact of having more and more nitrogen in our world? Yeah, there's been some really good science done by Will Steffen and Johan Rockström, and they publish in some of the leading journals like Science and Nature. And they've developed this idea of planetary limits, also known as the safe operating space for planet Earth. And they they looked at where we were in terms of 
species loss and extinction, ozone depletion, ocean acidification, nitrogen and phosphorus use, carbon emissions, and climate change. Essentially, all the metrics where humans are intervening dramatically into the Earth's system. And they worked with scientists, a whole cohort of experts around the world to try and figure out, so where's the line? You know, where's the line where if we stay within it, we're safe, but if we go beyond it, we start to create ever increasing risks. And this is the idea of planetary limits. You know, where are the limits? Where are the safe operating boundaries? And when they pulled all that research together and published a number of papers over the last decade and a half or so, uh, it was interesting to see that there were two ways in which humans have most dramatically transgressed those planetary limits. And the first one, people won't, well, you know, they'll probably be able to guess, and that is species extinction. Um, we've triggered the fastest extinction event in 65 million years. We're losing species off the planet at a rate uh, hundreds of times faster than the long-term normal background rate. But most people couldn't guess the second area in which we've, we've farthest transgressed planetary limits, and that's the nitrogen cycle. And what humans have done over especially the last 100 years with Haber-Bosch nitrogen, but it's not just fertilizer, it's also emissions from fossil fuel combustion. And some people know NOx or NOx, that comes from fossil fuel combustion. So it's not just fertilizer, but the intervention in the nitrogen cycle has been very, very large, such that if you think about how much nitrogen was flowing through terrestrial ecosystems in the pre-industrial period, you know, flowing through farm fields and pastures and forests and grasslands and wetlands. And if you look at how much is flowing through now, we've tripled the amount of nitrogen flowing through terrestrial ecosystems. Now, when you recall that nitrogen is probably the most critical plant nutrient, probably it really affects everything. If you increase the nitrogen in a system, it changes what grows there, how fast it grows, the diversity, the mix, the, the species that are selected for. It can acidify, it can have a whole range of effects. And, and to that really critical biospheric cycling element, maybe the most critical biological element in, in, in the world, you know, second only maybe to carbon, we've tripled the flow of that. And it's, it's really been massive. And that's, that's a planetary limit that we've moved beyond. And we need to find ways to move back within that planetary limit, just like we need to find ways to move back within the limits around carbon. I was going to say awesome, because that's sort of my default response to people saying things. But obviously, that's more depressing than great news. But to think about a little bit more directly how we can begin to rein that back in. How do y'all at the NFU recommend the world deal with this problem? You know, is there a way for us to get back to safe levels of nitrogen? Yeah, there's a lot of things we can do. First, we have to stop doing the wrong things and we, things like just maximizing output, because as long as we maximize output and every year set the bar higher and higher, that probably means we're going to use more nitrogen, not less. So we have to find new ways to structure the goals and targets for the food system that aren't around more and more and more. And then beyond that, there's a lot of really powerful short and medium term things we can do. There's a well-developed suite of best management practices called 4R. And 4R stands for the right rate of fertilizer at the right time, in the right place, in the right formulation. And I won't go into all of that, but, you know, 
placing fertilizer in the spring rather than the fall is better placing it you know at the right point underground rather than spreading it on the surface and especially using fertilizers that have additives and sometimes coatings that ensure that it doesn't release more nitrous oxide than absolutely necessary those things can give us about a 30 percent reduction in emissions right off the bat these are things that could be implemented you know next year or the year after that very near-term measures that right away give you a 30 percent reduction that's very powerful it's hard to think about how you get an immediate 30 percent reduction in co2 emissions for instance so there's powerful things that we can do and the government to their credit has rolled out a number of programs to make that happen. The on-farm climate action fund programs and hundreds of millions of dollars behind those mean that we're going to move forward with that. Hopefully fast enough, maybe not fast enough, but we'll have to see what the uptake is there. But beyond that, again, we, we need to look beyond 2030 perhaps and ask ourselves, what does this look like as we move toward 2050? and a a near zero emission world. And that creates a a number of other challenges. And that's where farmers and policymakers and citizens need to work together to, to some extent, reimagine and restructure the food system away from, on the one hand, maximum production, but on the other hand, maximum waste and dissipation, and really optimize the system, optimize fertilizer use, and make sure we support and stabilize those farmers margins because we we really can't undermine the economics of agriculture as we move forward or we'll just we'll just hit a real roadblock yeah let's dive into that for a second because earlier you sort of mentioned that it's not enough to just try to sort of step off the treadmill that we need to find other ways to also support farmers while we do that what does that look like We've got a number of things happening in agriculture right now. We've got margins that are getting smaller and smaller. Back in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and early 80s, farmers were keeping roughly a third of the money that they generated. Through the 80s and 90s, it fell to almost zero as input costs consumed almost everything. It's bounced back a little bit, and it it looks a little more prosperous right now where Farmers are managing to hold on to about 10 cents out of every dollar, but 90 cents out of every dollar is going to expenses. It's a very high cost, low margin business right now. In many years, a lot of taxpayer dollars are needed to maintain adequate net income. And farmers are on a bit of a treadmill. Their costs are going up. In most years, prices aren't. Their margins are getting smaller. They're pushed to farm more and more acres in order to generate a a family sustaining income. Debt has ballooned to $130 billion. You know, it just keeps doubling and redoubling. So it it really is a treadmill trying to stay ahead of those increasing costs, that ballooning debt and the, the declining margins. And we need to find ways that we can start to stabilize that. The other side of this is we're losing farmers all the time. As farms get bigger, the number of farmers get get smaller. And there's just a lot of trend lines going in the wrong direction. It would be wonderful that if in the future we found ways to optimize fertilizer use and thus reduce costs, that could increase margins, that could take away some of the pressure to farm more acres, that could slow the expansion and consolidation of farmland, it could slow the expulsion of farmers. There's just a whole 
number of things that when you start to solve one part of the problem, you can synergistically solve other parts of the problem. So fertilizer in the short term can be solved with some technical measures and best, best management practices. But in the longer term, it needs to be part of some connected up problem solving that looks at a lot of different aspects of agriculture. But again, I'll just say it one more time, it does need to respect the needs of farmers to maintain adequate margins and net incomes. That makes a lot of sense. And so I have a question that sort of veers away from this particular report, but I had a conversation about six months ago with a farmer who sort of noted this particular reality. And I'm curious from your perspective, how it can be sort of undone, which is that consolidation of farms. Like the idea that there are fewer farmers and bigger and bigger farms does seem like a part of the sort of consolidation towards a few powerful, which we see in the rest of society already pretty, pretty far out the Amazon of the world, basically running mom and pop stores out of business. And a similar type of consolidation is certainly occurring within the, within the agriculture sphere. Do you or the NFU have any processes or policies of how to sort of pull that back? Is that a possibility of one way to sort of begin to make sure more people are receiving reasonable incomes from agriculture? Yeah, great question. And I'll, I'll just reprise a little bit of what, what you said, because it's really important about you know, the place of farmers in the larger society and, and, and economy. And if people think about their city, you know, not everyone was around in say the seventies or sixties or eighties, but if, if we go back a generation or two, most of the businesses in a city were owned by the local families. The shoe store was owned by a local family, the, some clothing stores, bookstores, uh, even some grocery stores and hardware stores the businesses and the economy were largely owned by the local people that worked in them, the local families. Fast forward to today, and that's almost universally untrue. The clothing stores and the grocery stores and the hardware stores are all chains owned by people who are far distant. The one exception to that is farming. Agriculture is one of the last places in the Canadian economy and society where the enterprises are owned by the local families, uh, the families that live in the community, the money stays in that community, circulates around, there's local control. And that is an important part of a lot of things, including democracy. When people cease to own the economy and control the economy, those who do own it and control it are going to want to run it. They're not going to want to be dictated to through democratic processes by those who don't own and control the assets, et cetera. So I think it's important to think about uh, the ownership structure. And, and for that reason, and a whole bunch of others, it is important to support the continued local ownership of, of agricultural farmland. And that is, it's challenged and threatened as farms get bigger and bigger and bigger. When farms were a few hundred acres, one could imagine local people owning them. When they get to a few thousand, still, when they get to tens of thousands, well, those are very big economic entities. And if they should get to hundreds of thousands of acres, we're likely to start seeing a move away from local family ownership to publicly traded corporations starting to move into that space because the, the requirements for capital and just the scale get so large. So concentration of farmland and access to farmland for young farmers, new farmers, would-be farmers is very, very important. The NFU does 
a tremendous amount of work on that. We're working with you know, various governments and farmers to try and figure that out. We've got a, a farmer matching program, people with land and people that are looking for land. But to a significant extent, the problem remains unsolved in that the consolidation of land continues. I, I would be, I would be uh, misleading people if I said that we had solutions underway that would somehow, sh would somehow reverse or even slow that consolidation and that farmer loss. That's something we really, really need to accomplish in this country. Yeah, it's fascinating, you know, the way in which our systems are designed towards consolidation and seeming in every industry. You sort of see in the media industry right now how hard the government is trying to support small media startups because outside of that, two companies own basically everything. <laughs> and that seems to be the the direction everything begins to take because of the advantage of having significant capital. You know, if you have enough capital, you're able to continue to consolidate in a way that we don't have those structures and systems to break up these things after they get that big. There's not that ability to deconsolidate. Yeah, and and that's that's another part of what's driving agriculture right now. And just tying this back to fertilizer for a minute. The farmers that are there, and there still are, you know, many, many tens of thousands of farm families out there farming the land. They are in the middle of a, an agri-food chain and you've got, you know, energy and fertilizer and chemical and seed companies on one side. And then on the other side, downstream, you've got processors and packers and retailers and restaurants. And the consolidation in those other links is really making it hard for farmers. So we're to a point now where just what every link in that chain is dominated by two, three, four companies. Whereas in the farm link, there's thousands and thousands and in North America, millions. In fertilizer, for instance, we're to a point where four companies own and control 100% of nitrogen fertilizer capacity in Canada and three quarters of the capacity in North America. Well, you could imagine with that high level of concentration at the fertilizer level, and that low level of competition, that oligopoly structure, they have a lot of market power. And it's not hard work that determines the allocation of profit and revenue within that chain, it's power. And as these other links in the chain, as the companies are allowed to merge and become less numerous, they gain market power relative to farmers. And that's one of the reasons that the margins are going down in agriculture. One of the reasons farmers have to farm more land in order to make a living. And one of the reasons that the, the profit is increasingly going to these other links. And we're seeing right now, even as we debate whether, you know, how farmers will reduce emissions from their fertilizer, we're seeing fertilizer companies reaping record profits. Prices spiked and profits have spiked to record high levels. If you read the quarterly reports of Nutrien and Yara and, and Coke and uh, CF Industries, they're all reporting to their shareholders that profits are at record levels. Wow, that's so interesting. You have this perverse reality where on both sides of farmers, people are, are reaping in huge profits. You know, the Loblaws of the world are making more money than ever. The fertilizers of the world are making more than ever. And then the farmers in the middle who are doing really the bulk of the actual labor are struggling to to be able to continue their operations does sort of speak to as you mentioned the the ways in which power really determines where the profit goes versus versus anything else 
on a different episode of the show, I learned one of the weirder facts that I've ever heard, which is that the cigarette industry is the reason why we have non-flammable furniture, which I thought was fascinating. It basically comes back to the same point because the cigarette industry was able to say that, well, it's not that everyone is leaving their lighted cigarettes on couches and laying on fire. It's a cigarettes problem. No, it's that the couches shouldn't be able to be light up, lit on fire. And of course, big furniture didn't exist to push back against that messaging. So tobacco the industry was able to sort of push through these, these regulations while the furniture industry, which was much more dispersed, not as consolidated, does not have the same type of, of power, was sort of blindsided and had to change you know, their whole structure to ensure that cigarettes wouldn't light their couches on fire, which is a different industry, but a similar way that the power structures can really require people to, to change in ways if they're not consolidated in the ways that you're speaking of. Yeah, and, and we're certainly seeing that in agriculture. In our report on nitrogen fertilizer, we point out that the dominant agribusiness companies are now taking about 90% of the, the money that farmers produce. Farmers' margins are very low. And these companies have made themselves the primary beneficiaries in the system and also the primary decision makers. They're reshaping to a very significant extent how the system works. So we need to rebalance power within that system in order to help farmers have the space to make the changes they need to optimize rather than maximize this input use. Right, for sure. And so getting back to the the report, is there anything that you learned during this report that stands out to you that we haven't discussed? Anything that you were you know surprised you or that you think that the world really should know about? you know, that's not in sort of what we've already talked about. There, there were some surprising things. I'll just double back though, to the starting point of this, because I don't think we, we got to that at the beginning. The reason we undertook this report was we've been doing work on climate change and emissions in agriculture for many years. And when we got deeper and deeper into the data and looked at what was happening, we saw that this, there was a long-term trend line going up for emissions as a whole. But when we dug in to see why the emissions were going up, it wasn't, it wasn't fuel use, it wasn't emissions from cattle, or it wasn't emissions from manure. It was all driven by fertilizer. It was driven by that doubling and redoubling of fertilizer tonnage. And that's what's really focused the attention of the National Farmers Union, of other organizations, and even the federal government on fertilizer. You just cannot bring agricultural emissions down if emissions from fertilizer keeps keep going up. So that's really why this is critical. It's, it's not just a, a fertilizer emissions issue, it's an agricultural emissions issue. And it's part of a larger question, how do farmers and how does the agricultural sector do its part in a larger economy-wide social change to get to the 2030 target of a 40% reduction and to get to the, the 2050 target of near zero emissions? So that, that's really the starting point and, and the foundation of this. But as we dug deeper, we, we noted that there was just a lot of effects of nitrogen, not just greenhouse gas emissions, but effects on ecosystems and biodiversity, on water quality, on groundwater. It shouldn't surprise us, given how central nitrogen is 
to the, all the processes of the biosphere, that when you triple the amount that you're injecting into the landscapes, that just what everything is going to be affected, all the water, all the air, all the plants, all the animals, all the soil. But that's kind of what was new information, you know, one of the new information pieces to us you know, the, the scientific literature is, is full of the documentation of it, but it usually doesn't make its way into the, the popular conversation around this. So it's not just a greenhouse gas emission issue. It's a reshaping of just about everything. And even urban air quality and uh, human health impacts are there. So there's a lot of reasons to use nitrogen fertilizer as carefully and optimally as possible. It's not just a climate and emissions issue. That makes a lot of sense. And so for folks who have heard this and want to dive you know, even deeper and read this report, where can they find it? They can go to nfu.ca, www.nfu.ca, click the big blue button that says climate, and they'll go right to a page where they can download the report in English or a, a summary of the report in French. There's a lot of graphs that I think they'll find very interesting. There are more than 200 references to science journal articles. Parts of this report were peer-reviewed by some of the, the leading experts in nitrogen flows in the world, experts from the United States and, and around the world. This is a, the product of many, many minds and, and many, many months of research. And it really broadens the debate. What most people are going to encounter around the nitrogen fertilizer debate is really a subset of a whole larger discussion that's going to stretch on over many, many decades as we struggle to balance a whole lot of different competing goals. You know, feeding a growing population is one, but doing it with lower emissions is the other. And that, that balance, that tension is really going to be a, a primary shaping force within our, our farms and food system for decades and decades to come. So it, 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 you know, just as people learned a lot more about carbon over recent decades, we hope that they'll learn a lot more about nitrogen starting now and moving into future decades. Amazing. Well, folks, go to nfu.ca, check out the report. It is truly something that you'll learn a lot from, especially if you're uh, more of a city folk like myself. But thank you so much, Darren Qualman, the Director of Climate Crisis Policy and Action with the National Farmers Union. Really appreciate hearing and learning from you every time you come on and have a wonderful day. Thanks, Stefan.